Hello, I'm Christian, and you're listening to Inside the Cambodia Project, an educational podcast where we discuss cutting-edge research on sustainable business in an emerging market. In our last episode, I talked with Logan Mallory about what being generous really looks like at the corporate level. Logan shared some really insightful stories about his personal journey in the business world and the innate potential for good within each person. Then, in the spirit of Christmas, we discussed how giving and making sacrifices empowers and lifts businesses, shareholders, and stakeholders alike. As it was a Christmas special episode, um, in our last episode, Logan and I talked about the power of Christ-like service in our communities. It was wonderful hearing how Logan is trying to be a force for good in his own life. Because I plan on doing a marketing degree here at Brigham Young University, I'll be applying to the Marriott School of Business in the coming months. One reason why I'm drawn to the Marriott School is the school's vision, which says, we aspire to transform the world through Christ-like leadership. This vision really resonates with me, and I feel like that vision to transform the world is something being pursued by many marketing professors across the globe. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing one of those world-transforming marketing professors, our very own podcast producer, Dr. Benjamin Beck. Ben is an assistant professor of marketing here at Brigham Young University. And prior to his work at BYU, Ben was at the Pennsylvania State University, earning his PhD in marketing. Much of his research focuses on sustainable change and doing good. For example, his most recent paper, published in the Journal of Marketing Research, focuses on how businesses can be guardians of trust, improving aspects of their websites to fight review fakery. Today, he'll be telling us about some research completed by some of his academic peers, research that focuses on making the world a better place. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As you know, Ben, I like to share a quote to start each podcast. And today's quote comes from the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Muhammad Yunus, who is widely recognized as the father of microloans for underserved entrepreneurs in developing economies. Mm -hmm. He says, human creativity is unlimited. It is the capacity of humans to make things happen, which didn't happen before. Creativity provides the key to solving our social and economic problems. So Ben, that quote's really interesting. There's a lot packed in there. I want to know, do you agree or disagree, and it's okay if you disagree, that creativity is the key to solving our social and economic problems? That's a, um, a wonderful way to start this podcast because so much of this marketing research that we'll be talking about today is very creative. It's uh, cutting new, um, establishing new boundaries, or I should say pushing boundaries. For right? sure. a, a lot of marketing research uses data and analyzes that data and then gives you outcomes based on that data. But what we'll be talking about today is field research where the marketers are going out and changing the world. And that takes creativity. Um, I don't know that I would agree though and say that creativity is the key. It's a huge aspect of that, but there's so much that needs to go on. And the first part of it is something that that you focus on a a lot of these podcasts, the drive to lift where you are, to do good in the world if you don't have that drive, you're never going to worry about society and how you can make it better. So I think that, that creativity is an important aspect, but maybe not the key. I think not maybe, necessarily the key. Yeah, maybe the key would be um, just having that passion and drive for it. However, 
I do not have a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> uh, Eunice does. And so I would probably um, defer to his better judgment <laughs> of whether or not creativity is the key. <laughs> For sure. Okay, that makes sense. How does... Uh, still talking about this quote, how does it fit into the Better Marketing for a Better World initiative we're talking about today? Yeah, so the the Better Marketing for Better World initiative, I think we've mentioned this on other podcasts, um, is an initiative trying to get marketing scholars to think about how their research can really benefit the world. It's one that, that I love, and it's, it's rather new. I mean, marketers have been trying to do good for a long time, but... Um, They've also done some harm to the world, potentially too, right? <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I love that Eunice is focusing on um, creativity starting that, right? How can we help society? Better marketing for a better world, that initiative. We'll talk more about it on this podcast. We'll go into a little more depth, I think. Um, it, it is driven by that desire, by the creativity, by the the, the th- just overall thriving to do better in society. For sure. And I, I think that we can reconcile the point, like creativity is definitely uh, huge in marketing, right? Yeah. If you're a creative marketer, you're probably a very successful one. Um, but I, I don't think we have to draw a line in the sand as far as uh, the extent to which creativity uh, is effective. I think that as far as doing good goes, being creative is is definitely something we're looking for. Yeah. Um, and it's it's definitely, we shouldn't undervalue it at all. Yeah. Um, I, um, I love that you brought up creativity is, is central to marketing. So I should have thought of this when you first asked that question. I teach advertising and promotion here at BYU. So all marketing students take that. And one of the ad campaigns we study in the class is from Wrigley that for extra gum. Okay, the, yeah. The, the gum brand was dying. Wrigley's brand had... It was seeing decreasing sales over time, over time, and you may have re- you may remember where Juan was the name of the of the the young man and the young woman was um, I don't remember Susan or whatever, but it, it tells about their courting story and how Juan keeps drawing on the inside of these wrappers the story and at the very end um, for she's abroad or she's somewhere else right she's living somewhere else but her and Juan are keeping in touch and then they. She goes for a date night with him to meet him somewhere, and she goes into kind of an art studio type format, and there's his little gum wrappers all over on the walls that he's hung on these professional photos. Mm-hmm. And then the last one shows him proposing to her, and, and he's there, and they propose. And it's this love story that Wrigley tells that was fantastically creative, and it helped the, the, the their brand dramatically. It created a whole bunch of user-generated content, which is – the pinnacle of good marketing, right? Getting your users involved. Um, but it also tells a wonderful story of love, which is is great for this world, right? Instead of partying and um, being crazy and um, some things that marketers may tell, they told a story of love. And I think it was marketing that helps lift society. Right. And I think so we actually talked about that uh, in my marketing class this semester. Oh, yeah. And what I love about did, did that, Dr. Swenson show that video then? Yeah, he did. Okay, it was, it was really cool. And I think the one of the best parts of that is that the ad focuses not so much on a call to action, right? Like buy our brand now. Uh, it's more it just tells a story, which really resonates with the humanity in all of us, um, and it appeals to that that creative side of all of us, that that part of us that craves a, a good love story, right? Yeah. And it was just a, yeah, very well done advertisement. Thanks for bringing that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I wanted to talk more with you about you personally, just before we get into what marketing scholars are doing as far as doing good in the world, I wanted to ask you, like, for example, what inspired you, Ben, to engage in this kind of research, this this doing good, this making the world a better place kind of research? So when I first started my PhD, I was uh, rather steeped in marketing scholarly research. A lot of that, like I, I mentioned earlier, was uses data. Here is a data set from a company. Let's evaluate it and see what, what that company could do better to do their marketing more efficiently. Um, that's very important. Important insights come out of that. I'm not trying to demean that in any means. But it can be rather monotonous and boring sometimes. So part of it was selfish. Doing this research that, that may lead to field research where I'm out in society trying to help the world is actually fun. It's enjoyable to do. But beyond that, it... Um, gives me awesome conversations to have at the dinner table with my family, with my two boys. We talk about doing good in the world. And I see some of my neighbors who go and serve, do, do humanitarian work in Uganda and different places around the world. And it's inspiring. And it makes me think we should all be doing that. If we've been blessed to have the time, the wealth of time or the wealth, the monetary wealth where we can be helping, we absolutely should. That should be a focus in our lives. And it doesn't have to be helping abroad. It can be helping in our own backyards, right? Serving in our communities, whatever it be. That inspired me to get engaged in this marketing work. And so I'm, I'm taking a little bit different approach than most marketing scholars do with this. But there is a precedent set by other marketers that are doing the same thing. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I can definitely relate in that sometimes, you know, life can get monotonous. Yeah. But I also admire the fact that you're looking for, I guess, a, a flair or, or something in, in something that's doing good, right? Making a difference. Yeah. Although I do want to ask, does, does this research that we're doing, does it actually make a difference? Or are we just kind of forming conjectures and hoping that people do something about that? Yeah. Um, I think it does make a, uh, make a difference. So the, the paper, my most recent paper, looking at online reviews and the fakery in online reviews, and then what businesses can do to decrease that fakery. So platforms like TripAdvisor or Yelp, Trustpilot, what can they do to increase trust in their platforms? Of course, the number thing they should number one thing they should do is decrease fake reviews, put monitoring in place, put um, exposure mechanisms in place for bad players. So there's things that they can do, and we show this in the paper. I was a little worried that we would publish this paper and it would just sit on the shelves of academic libraries and never be read by anybody. But shortly after publishing it, the Federal Trade Communication actually reached out to us and said, we'd love to read your paper. We're making some regulations on a similar topic right now, and your paper will help inform that. That was awesome. Wow. Right? It's being used in a legislative circle. Um, what we're doing in Cambodia, the project you're helping me with, I think it will do good. It will. It, I really hope it will help establish, uh, set the groundwork for the establishment of norms around treating women and children in, in the right ways, right? Loving our families, establishing some good norms in society. So I think that that will, will be the case. And the three papers I'll talk about today, you, you'll pretty quickly see that they have a lot of potential to do good in the world. Okay, awesome. I'm excited to hear those. Before we get into it, though, could you just give us a a little bit more of an expose on, not an expose, but can you tell us more about the Better Marketing for a Better World initiative? Just kind of what what is it? And also, um, it you know, 
since it's already been published, and you talked about that special issue journal, is it over? Is it still going? Yeah. Um, just help us understand a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So a, l- a little background. The Better Marketing for Better, uh, Better World Initiative was launched. It takes forever for academic papers to be published. So um, the actual papers, I believe, were published. Let me look at my notes. They were published in May of 2021. Okay. Um, so that means several years prior to that, the Journal of Marketing put out a call for research and said, we want research in this area. Research that shows how the world can be made better by marketing and how marketers can help. So that that happened probably in the 2018 or 19, right? Um, the If you go to the Better Marketing for Better World website, it's bmbw.org. You can read a little bit about it. And they, they have these, these two sentences about it, talking about the good of marketing and the potential bad. They said, and I quote, marketing has the power to improve lives, sustain livelihoods, strengthen societies, and benefit the world at large. But here's the, ba- the other side of that. At the same time, marketers can have a dark, marketing can have a dark side. <laughs> it has the power to hurt customer, consumers, employees, communities, markets, institutions, and the env- environment that surrounds us. So it's um, kind of ominous, Ben. <laughs> it is ominous. When I read that, I'm like, "Ooh, do I agree with that?" So I, I want to ask you a Christian, Christian, a question that you're probably not you're not ready for, right? Um, can you think of ways that marketing might hurt society? Do you have any examples or ways that that may happen? Well, um, in my marketing class this semester, we talked about like the integrity inherent to marketing, right? And if you violate the trust that exists between marketers and consumers, there's a lot of consequences. Yeah. However, I, I think that it's also fair to say that if marketing, you kind of control a lot of, um, you have a lot of sway in, in given market segments. And if you think about all of the people involved in the success or failure of a company, if marketers don't do their job well, then you know you can potentially hurt all these stakeholders, shareholders that we I talked about with Logan um, just last episode. So I think that you know you can do your job too well yeah. and and market unfairly, um, but you can also potentially hurt the people you're working with, Yeah. right? A good brand needs to motivate its employees. Uh, it needs to resonate with customers. It's it's something that people can rally behind. And if mm-hmm. marketers aren't doing that for their brand, then if they're not marketing to the heart, which is what my professor Mike Swenson emphasized all semester, if you're not marketing to the heart, you're not marketing, or at least you're not doing it well. Yeah. No, I love that. If you're not marketing to the heart, you're not doing it well. Um, I love that you brought up stakeholders versus shareholders. Right. Um, there's we look at business in a different lens these days that businesses do need to do good in their societies for the families of their employees, for their consumers. Right. They're a lot more accountable than they perhaps they used to be. Yeah. Um, you make me think about. So one example I have of the dark side of marketing. I remember at one of my employers, I was pulled into my v, my vice president's office and he asked, he said, we want to do a mail in rebate for this product slash service that we have. Um, and he wanted to talk to the details of setting that up. I kind of managed the technical side of marketing. So it was going to be me that was doing the implementation. 
And I'm like, yeah, I can set it up this way. We can have our marketing automation tool help. We can have automated processes. I talked about how easy we could make it for the consumer. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, we don't want to make it easy. We need to have them. We want to require them to print out some papers, to get it signed by this person, to have it mailed in here. He actually wanted to make it hard and convoluted so that we would have lower um, percentage of our consumers actually taking advantage of that rebate and getting paid out on it. Oh, okay. And I, and I heard that and I thought, oh, that's bad for our brand. Like, why would we want to do that? That's not <laughs> helping our consumers. So I told him, I said, I said, I'm happy to work on this, but I'm not going to work on it in that way. And he respected that and he went and found someone else on our team to do it. Um, but there was something about that company. I actually ended up leaving that company shortly thereafter because I just felt bad about the direction they were taking the brand. Right. And so there is a dark side to marketing. Um, but I, sorry, I, I, I digress. I don't want to focus on the, the dark side. <laughs> good, <laughs> this yeah. episode is talking about how marketers do good. Um, so back to the, the Better Marketing for a Better World initiative. The, the original um, special issue journal had 14 articles published in it. And these uh, each of these 14 pieces of scholarly work are fantastic in their own right. Um, probably tens of thousands of hours of scholars time go into publishing one of these papers. Like it's incredible how much time and money goes into each individual paper. So of the 14 papers, there were four key topic areas that, that it focused on. The first was sustainability and climate concerns. Okay. An important topic, right? Another one, economic and social empowerment. Uh, another one was health and well-being, and then the last topic area was pro-social giving. So there were these four topics that are represented by these fourteen papers. Um, if a, a shameless plug for this initiative from the Journal of Marketing, if you go to bmbw.org, and at the top of the website there's a um, a tab or a menu I, a, item for knowledge or knowledge base. Something along those lines. If you click on that, and then if you look at one of the earliest entries or earliest blog posts on that website, that it will be the special issue. And the nice thing is all 14 of those articles are, I believe all 14, are open access. That means you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have access to an expensive library to access, to read them like you do most papers. So anyone listening to this podcast can go and read these papers and use them as inspiration for good even if you don't have access to an academic uh, library. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's way cool. Yeah. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of uh, correlation between this Better Marketing for a Better World and the uh, global SDG goals, the UN goals. Yeah. A lot of those four sections really remind me of some of those goals. And yeah. I love that I get to work on this Better Marketing for a Better World initiative with you in mm-hmm. the Cambodia project. It's just, it's great to be a part of this. And Unfortunately, we won't be talking too much about the Cambodia project today, but instead you said that you wanted to present a few important papers from uh, other scholars on the topic of, of doing good through marketing. Could you give me maybe a brief summary of each of the papers you wanted to discuss, Ben? Yeah, I, I would love to. So um, I pulled out three papers. Two of the three papers are from the Better Marketing for Better World special issue. One of them was not. It was published later, which is great to see that pap- that that um, academic scholars are still publishing this research. There, there's still a focus on it. Um, I actually went to a conference. Yeah, it was this spring, the the win- the 2023 Winter AMA Academic Conference, and they had at least one session. I think they had a few sessions about this Better Marketing for Better World topic. 
one of the sessions I went to, I only went to one of them. It was full. There was even like almost standing room only, right? There, there were tons of people in the session. There's a lot of enthusiasm, excitement around this topic. Wow. So the topic is definitely not dead. Um, but the, of the three papers I chose, I couldn't, of course, we can't go through all of them. I'm only going to go, I think I will probably only go through one in depth. Okay. But I do want to talk briefly about the three, kind of introduce them. Um, before I do that, I want to just mention that on each of these academic papers, there's uh, three to five authors on them. There's a lot of scholars that are working on this topic. Wow. Um, I chose some that I had seen presented at conferences. Um, and I happen to know the authors. The authors are friends from other institutions. And while, while I can't go through and name everyone, I do want to name those that, that I've seen present this research, some of my friends. So um, Frank German. Uh, and, and I apologize if I if I slaughter some of these names. Some of these names are <laughs> no worries. not in my native tongue. So Frank German, Shreya Kankanhali, Nida Umashankar, Pradeep Chindagunta, and Steven Anderson are some of the, the people that are kind of the leaders in this space. And they're leading out. And I've chosen their papers just because I've seen them presented and they're friends. So that's what I'm, I'm presenting. The, the first one I wanted to show... Um, is was a, f a field experiment from Uganda where um, the research question was: Do does marketing really matter to entrepreneurs? Right, these, these small entrepreneurs in a developing world, in a developing economy like Uganda, how much do marketers matter? So what they did with this field study is they um, connected these entrepreneurs with marketers with. So people across the globe that had good marketing experience or other professional experience or consulting experience. There were three groups, the marketer group, a consultant group. These were people that were just general consultants that were actually paid for their consulting. Sure. Um, and then th the third group was uh, professional business people, finance, accounting, maybe right, all the other resources, facets. Yeah, other facets of business. So they had these three groups randomly assigned to entrepreneurs and they would get on Skype calls or have a Google Drive folder or Dropbox where they put helpful documents in, they would exchange emails, they would connect on Facebook Messenger, whatever it was with these um, entrepreneurs in Uganda. And they tried to help them improve their business. The awesome finding was marketers had the biggest impact, a considerable impact. All three of these treatment groups helped considerably over the control group, which was just entrepreneurs that didn't receive any any um, outside expertise. But the marketing group helped the most. Um, I, I did want to share the number. So for those that received marketing help, monthly sales grew by 51.7%. Wow. Yeah. Huge, right? That, for that, that's entrepreneurs. Hot. That's crazy. Exactly. And of course, some of that those monthly sales were probably going back to being reinvested in advertising and, and whatnot or um, signage, whatever it was. So the actual profits only improved by a smaller amount, but still 35.8% was the increase in profits from these marketing um, uh, interventions. And then the number of paid employees increased by 23.8%, which I love that. Whenever I see people hiring more employees, that's helping them, them helping society. Right, that's getting outside the business and into the community. Yeah, that's exactly, awesome. yep. So. Um, it, one of the, the key findings was that marketers spent more time on product-related topics than some of the others. And what's most important to the consumer, 
the product, right? What are they getting out of the transaction, the product or the service? And that's where marketers spent most of the time. That lifted that group the most. So this just, um, it, this highlights the importance of marketing and how marketing can have a positive impact on business as a whole, but I would argue on society as well. Yeah, that's way cool. Thanks for sharing, Ben. Yeah, so that, that was the, the first paper. Uh, we won't go into more detail on that just for lack of time. The, the second one was looking at marketing uh, marketplace literacy in subsist, subsistence marketplaces. So have you heard of the word subsistence marketplaces? I have not. I'm not familiar. Can you enlighten me? Yeah, so a subsistence marketplace is where consumers are coming into the marketplace and they have low resources. Okay. And, and the sellers normally have rather low resources too. Um, and oftentimes the consumers are also sellers. So you may have your hut out in the woods, right? Or a, this, um, a lot of this was done. So this was done, this research was done in India and Tanzania. So maybe you're out in the bush and you are taking plastic goods and recycling them into little handbags and then going to the market and selling those. So you are selling and then you take the money and you go and purchase goods. So <clears throat> in a lot of these case cases, the consumers are buyer and seller, which is really interesting. So this is kind of the subsistence marketplace. Subsistence meaning they barely have enough to get by a lot of times. And it's the marketplace where those transactions are happening. These businesses, they are not registered with the government. There's probably not revenue accounting or reporting happening. They're very small businesses that are selling in these markets and consumers are buying and selling both a lot of times. Interesting. It yeah. reminds me of uh, almost like bartering is what it's making me think of. Yeah. Like goods for goods. The Absolutely. money is just kind of an intermediary. Yeah. And there probably is actual good for good bartering pulling out money a lot of times in these marketplaces too because someone may have a specific good that you want and then you have a good that they want and you exchange goods. For sure. Right? So yeah. It, it, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So okay. those marketplaces do exist in a lot of the world today still. Um, so this research uh, from Nita Umashankar is looking at marketplace literacy and how if you help these consumers and entrepreneurs become more literate about how the marketplace should work, it actually increases their, their psychological and social well-being considerably. Wow. So they show that in this research. It was um, really interesting and I, I just loved to see these researchers going out into these areas that are rather underserved um, and showing how marketing or marketplace literacy, a very important aspect of marketing, can make society better. Yeah, that's just really cool. I'm I'm uh, starting to see what you meant about how marketing research can make a difference in yeah. the community. You know, it's not just research. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the last piece um, that I think we should talk about in a little more detail about, it's one that um, you and I have talked about here and there in our marketing meetings, I believe, in our, in our research meetings, um, is looking at the emerging market. This was done in Mexico City, and it was done with small retailers. And they were given one of two treatments. They were given the treatment where they could receive external modernization or internal modernization. Internal modernization means we're going to help you do better at your accounting, your bookkeeping, um, things of that nature. So more skills for running your business better. Okay. The external was more of... Um, signage outside the store. Yeah, maybe like business to consumer interactions. Exactly, business to consumer interactions. 
anything, whether it's stuff you put up and leave or whether even the sales approach or the way that you interact with the customers, that was the external modernization. So th that project looked at that um, and evaluated whether internal or external helps the most for oh, these small entrepreneurs. Interesting. Yeah. So that's one that I think we'll, we'll dive into um, a little bit more. Do, do you have any questions before I di dive into that? Um, no, let's get into it. Okay. So um, this paper, um, because we're diving into it a little, a little, little deeper here, um, I'll share the author's name. And again, I apologize if I slaughter these names. So <laughs> no worries. Stephen Anderson, easy name. Leonardo Iacavone, Shreya Kankanhali, and Sridhar Narayanan. I'm sure you did this all perfectly. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but so the, these authors went into Mexico City and they talked to, I think, around 10,000 retailers in Mexico City, which is fascinating. They actually went face That's to face. That's a huge sample size. <laughs> huge wow. sample size. They limited that down to 1,400 and some odd, um, sorry, 1,148 retailers that actually participated in the study. And then they gave them... Um, around 55 hours. Well, they they gave them less time than that, but they they believe they they show that the entrepreneurs spent some time on their learning outside of their direct interaction. The direct interaction was around 30 to 35 hours okay. of time where people were going into the businesses and training the businesses on internal or external modernization. Um, they show that firms in both of these treatment groups raised their monthly sales by 15 to 19 percent. So, wow. yeah. Uh, uh, oh, there's some significant figures. Uh, they are sure. significant figures. Um, interestingly, they recorded, after the interventions happened, they recorded the, they had two other touch points where they reached out to them and said, what do your revenues look like? And that, so that was recorded over a 24-month period. So 24 months later, those people that, those businesses that received the treatment, so the training, versus those that did not receive any training, the control group, they are the ones that increased their um, revenue by fifteen to nineteen percent. So it did. It did. It. I don't know that it took twenty four months, but they showed that twenty four months later there was the effect. So I thought that was interesting. That's fantastic. I. So if this change took like twenty four months, that's a twenty four month research project. Then yeah. will it take that long for us to see results like that in Cambodia? Oh. <laughs> um, I hope not. Right. Because. <laughs> That's a long time. Um, the, the, the great thing about the Cambodia project is we're doing kind of a pilot study first where our interventions, I th unless we change, you know, we, we might. We're still in the, the planning stages. We, we're currently planning on the interventions taking three months. Okay. And then measuring their revenue thereafter, maybe for six months, maybe 12 months after that. So we're looking at like a nine to 12 month period. I think so. Okay. For, for, for our initial pilot study, if that goes well and we show that we can move the needle a little bit, we're going to expand that study. And that's when we go to an organization like the World Bank or the United Nations and say, hey, we need a larger funding source uh, and we're going to run an 18 month intervention and we're going to measure it at 24 months and 36 months too, like they've done in this paper. Because okay. I think long-term longevity is important but um, so that you don't get too bored about this. So I don't get too bored. <laughs> we need to see a little more immediate results as For well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some some interesting, so the background going into this. So they, they talk about emerging markets. An emerging market 
also known as the Global South. These are regions of the world that at one point were called the third world uh, third world economies, right? We had first world economies and third world economies. And, yeah. we, and we know that, um, who is it that wrote the book Factfulness? You remind me of his name? Oh, man, I can't remember. I am sorry. I You would have remembered had I not put you on the spot. He's a Swedish... He's a just, Swedish economist. Yeah. Uh, global health scholar. Global health, really public good. health scholar. Yeah. Um, he wrote The Economist. His name is right on the tip of my tongue. I'll remember it later and then just yell it out during the podcast and it'll be really weird. <laughs> okay. Um, but um, he shows that there's there's not really a third world anymore, right? All of the global economies are improving so dramatically. There's good news there that they're improving in a lot of things like educating women, um, child mortality rates, all of those things, right? So um, the global south or an emerging market, when I refer to that, I'm simply talking about economies that are still in a fast growth stage and have a lot of potential ahead of them. Whereas the the Western economies like uh, much of Europe, the United States, we've kind of already arrived. Um, And so it's these countries that are still emerging and growing. That's why I call them an emerging market. Yeah. But um, so in emerging markets, a group of retailers called traditional retailers, they still dominate that market. And from this this paper, they they identify that 57% of annual retail sales are still coming from these traditional retailers. Traditional retailers are ones... Small mom, small mom and pop shops is what you might call them, like a little hole-in-the-wall type retailer. Okay. Versus someone who has more business training. They have a more polished storefront. They may have multiple locations. It may be a chain or a franchise. Those are non-traditional. Gotcha. It's like it's a retailer where their business is their livelihood. Right? Yeah. Yep. So um, that was interesting that 57% of those uh, of annual retail sales are coming from traditional retailers, I thought. Yeah, that's a, that's a really big number. Do we... Do you think we're going to see a similar percentage uh, as far as traditional retailers goes in Cambodia? Yeah, I, w- I would probably say even in Cambodia, it's going to be higher than that. Oh, wow. Because so Mexico City is rather advanced compared to some of the cities in Cambodia. And so this global number of traditional retailers includes the Mexico cities of the world and the the, the Bangkok, Thailand, right? That's considerably more advanced economically than Phnom Penh or Batambong yeah. um, in Cambodia. So I expect we're actually we're capturing this data right now, but I expect we're going to see closer to 80% of retailers in Cambodia, retail sales occurring in these more traditional marketplaces. I'll be interested to see how that influences our research. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, we were on a call earlier this week, um, that call I was on with, with, with you, Christian, where Oliza Loy, one our Cambodian um, helper, research assistant, scholar, if you will, she was sharing some slides and they, she had a picture of a Cambodian traditional shop. Yeah. Really interesting. Things are just kind of all over in the shop. And they had a bar hanging from the ceiling with these little packets. Um, it was a strip of packets that were still attached together. So I'm guessing if you buy a single packet, the retailer gets scissors and cuts off a packet. Or yeah, maybe there's the shampoo program. and conditioner. Yeah, right? shampoo and conditioner. So instead of buying a full bottle of shampoo, they buy a small little packet that maybe will allow them to shampoo their hair two or three times. And they do that because they don't have money for a full bottle. Yeah, So that's just not how the income works over yeah, there. Yeah, and, and that's how the traditional market works in much of the world. Very different from us going to... Um, 
our local grocer to Walmart and picking a product off, putting it in a shopping cart, and then going and scanning a barcode. So we, I asked Eliza, how often do you see barcode scanning in Cambodia? And she says it's not very common. Yeah, almost never. Which yeah, almost is crazy. Never. I yeah. mean, how do you track revenue in a place like that? Yeah. And she even said that you may not find price labels. It, 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 sound, it sounded like a majority of time you're not even going to find prices, like a little label put on the product or even displayed around the product. And so it's just kind of a barter system, like you said. It's not This is not a subsistent marketplace in most of Cambodia, but even the small traditional retailers um, are operating kind of like it is a subsistence marketplace. Interesting. Yeah. So this, this research looked at that and it looked at it and said, what can we do to help traditional retailers? Um, and they introduced this idea. Well, the idea was already out there, but they just d- develop it further about modernization. How do we help these retailers modernize. Um, so, of course, um, modernization sounds good, but there's kind of two sides, right? Should you modernize or should you not? And the research is looking at that aspect of modernization. Well, it seems kind of intuitive, like modernization probably leads to sales, doing that internal and external work. I, I mean, that's why big businesses do that. Isn't that the case always? Yeah. Um, like, why why would you not do modernization, I guess is my question. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So is this research really showing anything, right? Like, why would you not do modernization? Maybe it's just common sense. We have to assume that everyone's going to do it. Um, from our cultural perspective, maybe that's more accurate. But if you are in a place like Mexico City or India or somewhere else, there may be benefits of running a traditional storefront. The benefits could be you want to look more traditional. You want to look more homegrown. You don't want to look super canned. Maybe you want to um, have a different uh, visual appeal. Of course, there's the the limitations on modernization. Do you have the time and money as a small entrepreneur to do it? Um, but in in the context of this study, they were they they did p- position the research question as um, is modernization a good thing? And they do give some ideas behind and, and rather cogent, strong ideas that, that show that modernization, you cannot assume that modernization is going to always be good. So that's why they're evaluating that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the actual treatment they did. So they, they went in. Um, one, oh, one interesting stat. So this is from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. It's a 2017 statistic. So it's probably... Um, decreased, it would have decreased in percentage, but they, they sh- that this United Nations report showed that emerging markets are very important because they house 80% of the world's population. So 80% of the world's population lives in what is classified as an emerging market. That was from 2017. Now I wouldn't be surprised if that's down to 70%, but still a sizable portion lives in these emerging markets. Wow. Yeah. That's, that. I guess that puts a little bit of perspective on the influence that research has. Yeah. If we're researching in emerging markets, we're researching uh, topics that might affect potentially 70 or 80% of the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, which is, is helps me think that this, this research does have potential to help the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so in this actual specific research study, they, they went out and they talked to 10,000 businesses and evaluated these businesses on a number of criteria. I'll get into it a little bit later, but um, they ultimately narrowed that down to 1,148 businesses. Um, and then they randomized these 1,100, we'll call it 1,150 businesses. They randomized them into three different groups. The first was a control group. 
The second, um, and these groups are about equal in size. So the first was a control group. The second received external training on, on external modernization. And then the third received modernization training for internal processes. Um, they, what they did is they had 13 different sessions where they would go in face-to-face -face and give them training on internal or external modernization. And that was about 35 hours. They assumed that the entrepreneurs put some time in too. So they're thinking about 55 hours total was spent by these entrepreneurs either internally or externally modernizing. And the, the effects were, were large and dramatic. So um, they found positive, statistically significant, and persistent effects that <clears throat> both external and internal modernization helps. But I'll let, let you guess. Which one do you think helps more, external or internal? I'm going to go with external. External. Marketing is, is awesome. Marketing is awesome. Yeah. And accounting is boring. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I love accounting. Um, my wife is an amazing accountant for our fi family finances. So. There we go. Um, but they, they did. You're, you're correct. So they, they, they showed that the external treatment group increased their monthly sales by $518. Wow. And the internal treatment group increased their monthly sales by $430 over the control group. They showed that the control group did not increase their revenues at all. I think they actually showed a slight decrease in sales for the control group. And that could make sense, right? If the treatment groups are maybe stealing business from control or right. over time, sometimes businesses just struggle. Yeah, that's fair. I It's interesting how close those figures are, though. I, I guess uh, I should have more respect for the internal modernization. Yeah, yeah. Even the internal modernization helps a lot. So um, they they did. They looked and they saw that the average firm was was earning two thousand seven hundred seventy six dollars in monthly sales. So a five hundred eighteen dollar increase or four hundred thirty dollar increase is substantial. Yeah. What what percentage of sales is that? Let me look. Um, so for the external group, that was eighteen point seven percent increase in sales. So that that's where the nineteen percent comes from. And then the internal sales, it was fifteen and a half percent. Wow. So. 16 to 19% increase in sales, which is really cool. Yeah. How does that, I guess, when we're talking about modernization, how does sales percentages, these positive increases, how does that really translate to real benefits for the store and the community? Because again, we're talking about, is this going to go beyond the business and into the community? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So, um, the, the numbers they have, so they actually showed that that 19% or 15%, the additional, we'll say $500 in monthly sales, that equates on average to one and a half months of rent for the store owner or one and a half new employees per business location, which is, okay. is awesome. So yeah. they can hire more. They can help their own family. They can help their finances. That's way cool. They have um, numbers on that. That's yeah, great. Exactly. And um, a lot of the corporate social responsibility research out there looks at big firms and how they can make the world better. But this is looking at small firms, entrepreneurs. And if you give money to a small entrepreneur, how does that help make the world better? Um, their family is going to be better educated. Their kids are going to be better educated. They're going to go into the world and be able to do better good. Hopefully, they're going to hire more employees or grow their business. And I know that there's anti-capitalists out there. Um, in some ways, I'm I'm definitely not an anti-capitalist. But, but some people will say capitalism is evil. I actually read a book recently about how evil capitalism was. Um, 
I believe that capitalism, a lot, especially in these small societies, these, these emerging markets for the small entrepreneurs, I think it's very beneficial because it helps them change their life in a dramatic way. And you, you do see a lot of good for society being built by these people. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to discuss briefly here the modernization actual effort. So what does it mean, external modernization? So they had five different modules and they, they asked the businesses, I, th- I believe if I remember correctly, they asked the businesses to adopt three, at least three of the five mo- modules. They could adopt more if they wanted to. But module one was external appearance, so external signage. Okay. Model two, module two was interior appearance, so how clean and tidy is the shop, right? That kind of thing. Um, module three was sales ta- tactics. So are you training your employees on sales, how to do sales, how to um, do good customer service? Module four was something that Oliza, our, our research assistant from Cambodia, said that they're not doing a lot in Cambodia, price labeling. Like, do you actually have priced right, labels on your product? Price. Yeah. yeah. So uh, fixing prices, labeling them, making sure your prices are competitive with the rivals. Those are some of the external um, things related to price labeling. And then the, the last module was customer engagement. So something that I think would be very interesting and one of the most important, um, how do you manage your relationship with your customers? Do you have uh, media that you're advertising on to communicate with them? Do you have newsletters? Like, how do you continue to communicate with them? So that was the fifth module. Okay. So out of those, which ones were adopted most by the businesses? Yeah. Great question. Um, Let me pull that up. So interestingly, the, um, the... One that I thought would be most important was customer engagement. That was actually the least adopted. Customer engagement, yeah. (laughs) Um, The most adopted was exterior appearance. So exterior signage. And then interior appearance, generally keeping the shop tidy, clean. Um, And then price labeling was the third most adopted. And then sales tactics and and customer engagement lacked considerably behind the other three, with customer engagement being the least adopted. Interesting. I wonder if the findings might have changed in a positive way, right? If, if those last two were adopted you know, yeah. in a higher percentage of businesses. Yeah, and I, I think in our Cambodia research, we're focusing a little bit more on that customer engagement. Right. So it'll be really interesting to see. We're going to focus on that more than signage or other external um, changes. If the business owners are engaging with their customers differently to promote... Um, that UN SDG, uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number five of gender equity, gender equality. If businesses are helping their society, engaging with their customers to promote that, does it benefit the business? That's our one of our main research questions. Yeah, and that's what differentiates us from research like this. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So um, hopefully, this customer engagement being the least adopted is not ominous to our own research, <laughs> or maybe it's just a mountain to climb, right? For sure. Yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then let's see. So the, the internal modernization structure that they use, they had five modules there as well. The first one was demand analysis. Can you evaluate the demand and plan accordingly to make sure you have the right products in place? Right. Um, the second one was earnings analysis. So are you tracking revenue? Can you determine your profit? Simply being able to analyze that was beneficial. And then the next two were about your inventory. So 
Module three was stock ordering. Are you having the right things brought in? Um, do you have records of those stock inflows? Uh, do you have records of the stock outflows so you can track where stuff's going? Module four was the quality of the inventory, how you're managing quality wise. And then module five was uh, the cash flow management. Okay. Very important for businesses. Yeah, those are all really important. Yeah. Of those, the um, the most adopted was demand analysis and earning analysis, so helping them keep records and be able to analyze those records. The least adopted was stock quality, which I thought was interesting because that's kind of a marketing thing, right? Product quality is pretty important. Yeah. So that was actually the least adopted, and maybe it's because they already have their vendors that they buy from, and they can't change that a lot. It could be one of the more difficult ones to adopt, for sure. It could, yeah. Um, so it, those are the, mod- the different modernization effects. Um, I, I, it was interesting. They showed that of those firms that were asked to participate or that were kind of signed up to participate, the those that adopted at least one intervention, so they started the intervention process, it was 88%. Um, uh, on average across the different treatments. So that was great to see that 88% of businesses were at least adopting one. And then those that completed the intervention, the average is 80%. So completing the intervention, I I believe, uh, um, oh, to complete the intervention was completing all 13 modernization sessions. So actually sitting through the sessions and working on that. That's pretty good retention, I would say. Yeah, it is. Especially 13 sessions, that's a lot of work. Yeah, for that many businesses. Too. Yeah. So the the outcome at the end of the day, um, we showed a 15 to 19% increase in sales, which is important. And one thing that they are, um, I'm trying to scroll down in this document for forever. So one thing that they um, bring up in the research is recommendations for next steps, right? Like what does the Mexico entrepreneurship board or whatever they call their ministry, right? What do they do to help entrepreneurs? And they showed that simply giving training is not as beneficial as if you have these in-depth sessions with the business owners and you're going in and actually helping them make the, the changes. So the, the 13 sessions weren't just um, weren't just informational. They were actually saying, okay, here's a new sign. Let's put the sign up. Here's how you do pricing and these things. So they were doing it with them hands on. Interesting. I feel like that's almost uh, overstepping a little, a little bit of the boundaries and in interventions. It, isn't it better to you know teach a man to fish rather than like do it for them that kind of thing? You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, that's a, a good way to look at it. Um, and a potential a good critique of this paper, right? These 13 sessions are so hands-on that maybe they're kind of doing it for them versus teaching them. I think that's, is that what you're yeah, questioning? Exactly. Yeah. Um, that is a good concern. How would I answer that? I, I think the researchers would probably say these 13 sessions, we were teaching them as well as showing them. So teach and show. Okay. And perhaps that's the best way to teach Just like a demonstration. A demonstration, yes. And because there was a 24-month later effect... I think that that would insinuate that the businesses kept doing what they'd been trained. And so maybe you had, had sufficiently taught them how to catch the fish. Gotcha. So maybe yeah. it's just part of teaching them is doing it for them, you know, have to help them crawl before they can walk kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I hope that I hope sharing that paper shows how impactful marketing research can be. Teaching entrepreneurs 
to change small things in their business can have a big effect. Yeah. yeah, I think it does, Ben. And I think it has a lot of really positive implications for us and for our research in Cambodia. It's making me more excited for, you know, actually getting on the ground and and having these interventions hopefully go places. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. Uh, before we go, I do have one last question for you just mm-hmm. to wrap things up. With a significant number of marketing scholars who are also responsible for teaching the rising generation like yourself in the college classroom or elsewhere. How does this research topic uh, of better marketing for a better world benefit your students? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, one th- so I use the Canvas learning management system. So anyone who's out there done college recently, you've probably been exposed to Canvas. It's a, a great tool sure for have. <laughs> doing quizzes, right? And getting documents to our students and allowing our students to upload things. So when my students first log into Canvas, they are taken to a dashboard with all of their classes. The thumbnail that I have, there's a little image for my class. It actually has the words, um, has the words faith, intellect, and character. So you mentioned earlier on the mission of the BYU Marriott School, that the mission is we develop leaders of faith, intellect, and character. So I have that in there, and I'm trying to teach that to my students throughout. And a big component of of faith is being more Christ-like and trying to do good in the world, right? Even if you don't believe in Christ, whoever your deity is or whatever your belief system is, having faith in good is important. So having that faith aspect is good. The intellect component, we teach them so many important things in class. I have no doubts that anyone coming to a good school like BYU or so many other universities out there are getting the intellect. But character building, I think, is probably the most important aspect. How do the students leave the classroom? Do they leave the classroom better poised to do good in society? That's something at the BYU Marriott that we focus on. And I talk about my Cambodia project in my class. I talk about online reviews and fakery and how you fight that and how you work through that. I talk about the research in class. So it does benefit my class in considerable ways. Um, So the mission statement is good. The the vision statement too from BYU Marriott, uh, the Marriott School, says we aspire to transform the world through Christ-like leadership. I I actually have, um, I'm probably going to do this each semester I'm teaching. I ask students that are interested in research to let me know. And they reach out and I engage them in my research. So this last, uh, um, I, I did have 132 students. I asked them and a lot of them said they're interested in helping research. I was able to get four of them into my research project. They're helping with some research that's pro-social, that's going to help the world. And that will help them become Christ-like leaders. In addition to just all my students getting material that's hopefully a little bit more focused on doing good in society. Wow, that's fantastic, Ben. And I, a thought I had as you were talking is just that, uh, that kind of reflects not only the Marriott vision, but also the vision of Brigham University, which is enter to learn and go forth to serve. Yeah, That's what I was thinking of when you said, you know, they go into the class, you're gonna learn all of this intellectual content, but then the idea is that you leave a different person, right? You leave changed, having built character and, and ready to go forth and, and, and serve. Yeah. So I, I think that's awesome and that's a model that I hope lots of professors are, are following. But thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for your thoughts on modernization, on on how this marketing research actually can change. Um, and I really want to bring it back to what you said at the beginning that 
it doesn't doesn't mean you have to go travel the world if you want to make meaningful change. You can make change in your own community, in your own backyard, I think is what you said. And as it's a new year, um, for our listeners, maybe one of your New Year's resolutions can be uh, what we always say, right? That you might lift where you stand.